Well, thanks for worshiping with us today, whether you're joining us online or from our West Campus or certainly here in Newburgh. Thank you so much for just leaning in and worshiping God and uh, just uh, being ready for what God might say to all of us today. As I shared uh, with a church family through uh, email on Friday, we have had a couple of staff members test positive for COVID and there was some exposure. And so we've been mitigating that situation by quarantining some of my teammates and also just uh, sanitizing the Newburgh Campus. So thanks for just being patient with us. Uh, I ask that you would pray for us as we continue to seek God's wisdom, uh, not only as we uh, lead through this as a team, but also as we care for you and your family. And certainly we're praying for our church family that God would protect us and uh, heal from these these, uh, symptoms, but also continue to do good things and great things in us and through us, even in a crazy season. That's about the only word I can come up with, crazy. So I'm going to stick to that word. I wonder what picture comes to your mind when you hear the name Jesus. I wonder if it's this picture of this olive-skinned man with long hair and a flowing beard. You've probably seen this picture uh, on churches or maybe in your living room. Maybe it's another picture. Maybe it's one of these, this classic picture that is on a children's Bible or on a lot of evangelistic tracks. Maybe it's uh, this with the glowing bubble behind Jesus' head. Maybe every time you think of Jesus, there's this glowing aura around him. Or maybe it's uh, the classic work by da Vinci uh, that you think of Jesus. Maybe it's a little more modern picture, like the one that comes from the Jesus film or even Passion of the Christ. Or I wonder if you have a picture of Jesus that comes to your mind like Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. You remember his prayers when he says, dear tiny Jesus in your gold fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fists? Or later he says, dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant so cuddly yet so omnipotent. (laughs) I think about what picture comes to your mind when you think of Jesus. You know, over the past several months, as we've been walking through the gospel of John, here's a church family, what John is trying to do is draw us a picture of who Jesus is. Draw us a picture by Jesus' teachings, by his miracles, by his interactions with people of just exactly who Jesus is. Throughout his account, John has presented Jesus and helped us to just see him for who he clearly is. And as we come to the end of John chapter 12 today in our study, we're actually seeing Jesus' final words of his public ministry that John records. John records how people are responding to Jesus And he gives us these concluding words. He leaves us with a choice that we all have to make. Do we truly believe in who Jesus is? John chapter 12, verse 37 says this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. John had spent the majority of his gospel from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 11, capturing the various signs that prove Jesus is truly who he says he is, that he was sent from God, that he is fully God, and that he is Messiah. Yet there are those who saw these signs and who heard Jesus teaching firsthand, and they still didn't believe in him. I hope that you notice John's words. I think he chose them carefully. He says they still would not believe. He goes on to indicate that their disbelief actually shouldn't surprise us. And he quotes two references from the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at those at John chapter 12, now beginning in verse 38. John records this. He says, uh, says, this was fulfilled to fulfill the word that Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who's believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For this reason, John continues to say, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes and he's hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor torn, turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. God had revealed himself to Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 captures this revelation of God's glory. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This was a powerful moment for the prophet Isaiah, and it resulted in him offering himself for God's purposes by saying, here am I, send me. But God warns Isaiah the assignment that he had for him. He says, I'm gonna send you to a people who are ever hearing, but never understanding. They are ever seeing, but never perceiving. That sounds like a fun assignment, doesn't it? Kinda sounds like parenting to me at times, right? God indicates that he has made their heart of these people calloused. He made their ears dull, not being able to hear. He made their eyes blind or closed because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. This has been a center of a lot of debate in Christian circles about the sovereignty of God and the free will choice of man. With John quoting these two references from Isaiah and speaking that they are fulfilled in Jesus' day, I think we have to come to understand two things. And the first is this. Every person has a choice to believe or not. From the moment that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them the command to not eat of these trees, humankind had a choice to obey or not. In the time of Isaiah, God's people were rebelling against him and disobeying him. So God revealed to Isaiah his glory and then gave him a message of judgment and punishment. And there seems to be this vicious cycle that we see play out throughout the entire Old Testament. It goes from sin and rebellion to punishment to repentance to restoration. And I think I see that same cycle playing out in our world today, even in our very own lives. But that leads me to the second thing. God is active in both judgment and restoration. From making animal skins in the garden to cover Adam and Eve after their sin, to the revelation he gives to Isaiah, not just in chapter 6, but also in chapter 53, of a suffering servant who would come and would take the place, the punishment of people's sin. God's activity and his sovereignty can't be ignored. It can, however, be rejected. Listen to this passage in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. It's a prophecy actually about Jesus that God gave to Isaiah. It says, Who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's what John quoted in John 12. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we have held him in low esteem. I think it's a prophecy about Jesus, but also I think it predicts the human nature. That with this choice that God has given us to believe or not, often we're not convinced. Often we let things keep us from placing our faith as well as our trust 
in who Jesus is. John takes these references from Isaiah and he says, this message that Isaiah was prophesied about, well, that speaks to the teachings of Jesus. And this strong arm of the Lord is a reference to the miracles that were performed by Jesus. And John uses these two references from Isaiah to affirm the identity of just who Jesus is, the suffering servant, the Messiah. In fact, there's probably 12 different overtones that John uses to point just to this. Isaiah saw the glory of this one to come. And John indicates that the rejection of Jesus is prophesied. Romans 1 kind of picks up this same baton when Paul writes about what happens when a person chooses to not obey or believe in God. And the same is true when we reject Jesus for who he is. In Romans 1 verse 28, Paul says these words. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they might, uh, so they might do what not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They, uh, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. If you're a parent, you might want to, you know, underline that one. It kind of fits in a long list of crazy, evil things, right? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. While each person has the choice to believe or not, Paul's very clear that our choice has consequences. God's omnipotence in knowing what we will choose does not prevent him from letting us live with our choices. D.A. Carson says this, God's judicial hardening is not presented as a capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be just what they themselves have chosen. It's a long words to basically say that God's a gentleman, that he stands at the door and he knocks on your heart. And if you don't let him in, he doesn't barge the door down. The Jews in Jesus' day were just like the Jews in Isaiah's days. They both rejected God. The people of Israel had seen God's mighty acts and they still chose to reject him and his message. The people in Jesus' day, well, they had seen his, seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching but they still did not believe in him. Neither Isaiah or John are indicating that God caused their disbelief. He simply used it. Without the rejection of the Jewish people, the Lamb of God would never have had to come or been slain for all. So let's keep on reading in John chapter 12 now in verse 42. It says, Yet at the same time, many even among the religious leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Most people think that in this moment, John is hinting specifically to the person that we meet in John chapter 3. His name is Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee who came to Jesus with sincere questions about faith. And those are recorded in John 3. We see in John 7 that Nicodemus took up defending Jesus when he was being criticized by his fellow religious leaders. And we'll also see Nicodemus claim the body of Jesus for burial in John chapter 19. 
And he was accompanied by a guy that's identified as Joseph of Arimathea, who was also part of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. And while these men later demonstrated strong faith, in this moment, John lumps them into a group of religious leaders who were more interested in the praise of men than in the praise of God. A better translation of those two phrases actually is in the glory of God or the glory of man. And in the con- it's in the context of what Isaiah saw revealed about God. Also, I think it's uh, very indicative of what Jesus said to Peter one time when uh, Peter was saying that he wasn't going to let Jesus die. And Jesus says to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you have the things of man in mind, not the things of God. I wonder what categorizes your thoughts, your motivation, your actions. Are they directed toward the things of God or the things of man? Are they consumed by the glory of God that makes you want to respond, here am I, send me? Or are they consumed by the things of this world? The same things that will never satisfy, the things that leave us empty at the end of the day. It was clear that Jesus was who he said he was, but he was not who the people wanted him to be. They were making a deliberate choice to not believe in him. Look how Jesus responds to their disbelief. It's recorded in verse 44, starting in verse 40. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light and that no one that who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I think this might be one of the strongest declarations of Jesus' identity made by him throughout his public ministry. In fact, you might take out your journal and add these declarations, these truths about Jesus to the I am statements that we have seen all throughout the last several chapters of John. John places this as Jesus' final public words. And he says that Jesus cried these things out. It's the same word that he used to call out Lazarus from the dead. It was vehement and compelling. It was a clear revelation of his identity. His words serve as a a culminating summary of all of his teachings and all of his miracles that he's already displayed. Let's look at just a couple of these. First of all, Jesus clearly says, I'm sent by God to this world to reveal God to the world so that we can know God and so that we could see God. It started all the way in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18. It says, The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who Himself is God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known to us. In John chapter 3, after visiting with Nicodemus, John has some words to wrap up. John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36 says, the one who comes from above, he is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what has been seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. 
Whoever has accepted, uh, accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God. And he gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. You see, God sending Jesus to earth was not just about revelation. It was also about relationship. Through Jesus, we can know God's character, but we can also know God as father. So closely is the father related to the son that to have the son is to have the father, Jesus says. Second, Jesus brings light so we don't have to live in darkness. John 8 verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All throughout John, we've seen this contrast between light representing the things of God, righteousness, holiness, and also darkness, which represents evil. And it reminds me what John says in his later epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 2, 2. He says this, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we've claimed we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his world is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you, John says, that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came to reveal the heart of God and his character so we could know him. But he also came that we wouldn't have to live in darkness, but we could live in the light. And Jesus came not to judge, but to save. John 3 verses 17 and 18 says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of, the, of God's one and only son. Jesus is very clear that there is coming a day when judgment will happen and that the words he spoke will condemn those who do not believe him as the word or also the words that he spoke from God. God sent Jesus to proclaim release for the captive and sight for the blind. But those who reject him will be held accountable. He came the first time as savior, but he'll come back again as judge. And the same message that proclaims life and forgiveness to us believers also proclaims condemnation and wrath to those who reject Jesus and choose not to believe in him. Judgment on the world will come because of that, Jesus says. Finally, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. In verse 50 that we just read, it's, Jesus says, his commands lead to eternal life. Earlier, when several people were turning their back on Jesus and they were no longer following him, Jesus turns to the 12 that he had chosen. And he says to them, do you want to leave also? And it's Peter, who's usually prone to sticking his foot in his mouth, who makes this awesome declaration recorded by John in John 6, 68 and 69. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That was even before Jesus said these words in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It was obvious from the first moment Jesus came onto our planet. It was true all the way till he ascended back into heaven. That Jesus is the only way that we can find life, life to its fullest, eternal life, and oneness with the Father. Jesus' bold declaration all throughout his public ministry, through his teaching and his miracles, they all affirm these concluding statements. And we, having walked through the Gospel of John up to this point, or maybe just heard these truths for the first time today, all of us, whether again or for the first time, we are left to answer a few questions. And the first is this. What is keeping you from seeing Jesus from who, for who he truly is? The picture that we see of Jesus recorded in the scripture speaks more to his character than his caricature. It's not like at the state fair where he's trying to draw some funny picture that kind of represents Jesus. John and the entire scripture is pointing to who Jesus is, his identity, his power, his love, his truth, his grace, his purpose. When attempting to gain a true picture of Jesus, don't let the descriptions or even the experience of others cloud your picture or impede your vision. Let the Bible reveal his heart to you and for you. Know that Jesus came to our world with skin on so that we could relate to him and so that we could come to see God. Don't let your disappointments of life or your hurt from others keep you from seeing Jesus for who he is and drawing close to him. His offer to come and see to those he first called as his disciples in John 1 and 2 is the same invitation he makes to Thomas after resurrecting, who Thomas didn't believe that Jesus had come back to life and he invites Thomas to come and see his hands, his feet, his side. That same invitation is available to all of us to come and see Jesus for who he truly is. And you can trace Jesus from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And our journey through the Gospel of John is intended to help all of us see him more clearly. And John 1 verse 12 speaks of a message of hope to us. To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So what's keeping you from seeing God and seeing Jesus for who he truly is? The second question, what's preventing you from believing in him? You know, so many times we make faith this emotional experience. Like we got to feel something to do something. And I don't necessarily want to downplay that, but I do want you to notice that believing and placing your faith in Jesus is a deliberate choice to do so or either to not do so. The religious leaders saw the clear evidence of who Jesus was. They chose not to believe. And even those who wanted to were afraid of what others might think of them or what it might cost them. Neither of those are like bad concerns. They're not out of place because Jesus is perfectly clear. He says, people will hate you because of me. And he also says, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me daily. All too, all too often, faith can be cramped out by what people might think of us or what the cost might be. So we settle for the things of this world, for the praise of men instead of the praise of God, for the glory of this world instead of the glory of God. All throughout John, 
The most powerful example of that is Judas. Judas is the person who allows the things of this world to keep him from experiencing life to the full. And we're going to see that play out, especially over the next two to three weeks in our study of John. That's why I think Hebrews 12, 2 encourages us to not let sin so easily entangle us. But the writer of Hebrews gives us a challenge. It says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't live this life for the praise of men or for the glory of the things of this world, but rather focus your heart on the praise of God and on the things of heaven. This leads me to the third question, and that is, why not respond in faith now? The writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to speak of the rebellious waves of the people of Israel in the Old Testament when Moses was leading them out of Egypt. Remember, they had seen many signs, sign after sign after sign, that God was powerful and was delivering them. And yet they chose to reject God and disobey. And so the Hebrew writer writes these words in Hebrews 3. He says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If you have truly seen Jesus for who he is, then today is a great day to make the decision to place your faith in him. Not letting anything hold you back or distract you from who Jesus is, but making a deliberate choice to believe and to obey in who Jesus fully is as God, Messiah, Savior, and Lord, to respond in surrender as well as obedience. Now I wanna encourage you, if you're ready to take that step right now, that you just simply pull out a phone, whether you're at home or west or here in Newburgh, and just text the word now, N-O-W, to 812-858-8668. And what we're prepared to do is help you understand how you can enter into a life-changing, a long-lasting, an eternity-filled relationship with this one named Jesus. This one who's come from heaven to earth, sent by God to reveal who God is, to help rescue you from darkness and bring you into light to reveal to you that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that by placing your faith in him, you can know God, you can have a relationship with God here in this world and in the life to come. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for revealing yourself through Jesus. Thanks for wrapping yourself in human flesh, sending Jesus here as a, a full representation of who you are. And God, as we read through scripture, we can see him come to life. We don't need an artist's portrayal of who Jesus is. We can come to know who Jesus is by listening to the revelation that you have given us and to see his work in our life and, the, and in lives around us. And God, I'm convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. I'm convinced that he is fully human, but he is also fully God. He's the one that was prophesied about. He literally lived here. He died for me and he came back to life and he reigns in heaven now. And I believe that from the core of who I am. And I've seen Jesus at work 
in the world around me and in my life. I've seen him do things that only you and he can do. So God, I'm convinced. And my prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit is working on hearts of all of us here gathered. And I pray that you would be revealing yourself more and more to those who are not yet convinced, that they would make a deliberate choice to move from darkness to light. They'd make a deliberate choice to not hold on to the things of this world and the glory of this world, but they would hold on to you. They would grasp on to you as their only hope, their only source of salvation. And God, I pray for the rest of us, Lord, who've made this determination in our heart that you are king and you are Lord, that that would be displayed in the way that we live our lives, that we would live lives of surrender, that it wouldn't just be something we believe, but it would be something we live out and act upon. And God, the world would see you by the way that we live and by the way that we love, that we bring you glory. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus, amen. You know, all throughout scripture, when we see somebody who is convinced of who Jesus is and they, they place their faith in him, what we see is a, just a step of obedience immediately is that they choose to be baptized. Baptism is taught all throughout scripture as a deliberate choice to public declare that Jesus is Lord and Savior of our life. I love how Paul writes to the Colossians about this. Listen to what he says in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 9. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in him, Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of your sins, having canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is very clear that Jesus is and what he did on the cross is what saves us. And our response is just to accept Jesus for who he is and what he did for us by believing in him and putting that belief into action by obedience. Without obedience, I don't think there really is any true faith. And while there's many ways that which we can obey this weekend, we're offering people, anyone who's never taken that step of obedience and baptism to do just that. We have several all throughout our weekend services that are prepared to be baptized. And we want to encourage you, if you've never taken that step, to do just that. It was November 9th, 1986, and I'd grown up in church. I'd been to church all of my life. I knew who Jesus was, but for whatever reason, that morning, in fact, it wasn't until my dad was preaching his heart out, just like I have just tried to do, that it just seemed like today was the day that I needed to make that decision to be baptized. Like I said, I knew who Jesus was. I was trying to follow him in my life. But for that, whatever, more, whatever reason, that morning was the right morning. And so when my dad gave an invitation, I slipped out from that pew and I started walking down that center aisle in a small country church in Kentucky. And I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. He was just bawling his eyes out. Because I know in that moment, that was an answer to a prayer that he'd been praying maybe even before I was born. 
And that morning, I wasn't just pleasing my earthly father. More importantly, I was pleasing my heavenly father. Not so that I could be saved, but because I was saved. Because of what Jesus had done for me, I was responding with a heart full of faith that said, here am I. I choose to follow Jesus with my entire life. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. I believe in who Jesus is. And I want the world to know it. I know some of you were baptized as an infant. It's because of the faith experience of your parents and they made a deliberate decision that they wanted you to, to be raised in the knowledge of, the, of Jesus and, and to live a life of honoring God. And we see in scripture that the example of baptism is by somebody who's making that choice for themselves. And so your decision to be baptized as an adult is not canceling what your parents may have committed to in the beginning. It's actually a fulfillment of that. What we see in scripture is people who are making a deliberate decision to follow Jesus is they are immersed in baptism, that they represent and they reflect what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection look like by being lowered into a watery grave and brought back to life to live for him forever. So I'm going to challenge anybody who has never placed their faith in Christ to do so right now. But for those of all of us who have, And maybe if there's anybody who's never taken that step of obedience and baptism to do that right now, right now. In fact, I want to let you know that we have plenty of clothes in the back to change in so that you'll have something dry to wear home. But I'm going to encourage you to meet me in the water right now and say, I'm letting the world know that I believe in who Jesus is. And I want the world to know that I'm committing my life to following him every step forward. If you're ready to make that decision today, I pray that you will. And for all of us, we're going to stand and worship right now. And so I ask you to, to join us in this moment right now. My teammates are going to be meeting you right over here at the door. The door's open for you. The light's on. The water's warm. I hope that you'll respond today.